Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. In those days, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Shadolomor of Elam, and King Tidal of Goem, wage war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemeber of Zoboim as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Siddim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Shadar Lamor to, for 12 years. In the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Shadar Lamor and the kings who were with them came and defeated the Rephaim in Eshetaroth Karnaram, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emin in Shavar Kalartharim and then the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade Emishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in Hezazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Siddim Valley against King Shadar of Elam. King Tidal of Goem, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits. As the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Anar. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And as he and his servants deployed against them by that night, defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, and as well as all the women and other people. After Abram returned from defeating Shadar Lamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheva Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the, little, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except that the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Enar, Eskol, and Mamre, they take their share, the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa, for reading that. 
One of the hardest passages to read in the entire Bible, I will say. What is it all about? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Today, being a very special day where we have just ordained new leadership in our church, I was thinking I'd need to kind of step away from our Abram series on living by faith. I looked at chapter 13, I looked at this chapter and thought, I think I might need to find a different passage that's more suited for the occasion as our BCO requires and I think is a good requirement for a special day like ordination day. So as I was looking at these next few chapters and especially this one, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe something different. We'll wait on this one and figure out what's going on with this interesting but strange passage. But while I was looking at this, I read one line in a commentary from one of my professors, Dr. Bruce Walkey, and these light bulbs started going off for me. And he said about this, <laughs> this, this passage that we just read, the word king appears 28 times in this story. And I said, thank you, Dr. Walkey, for counting that for me. <laughs> this is a story about kings. It's a story about leaders, about leadership. And it's about Abram taking leadership for the sake of his nephew Lot and for a whole bunch of other people who were in this terrible situation having been taken captive. And a light bulb went on for me when I thought about that. I said, oh yeah, this story that we've been reading, we were four chapters or four messages in about Abram is not only about Abram learning to live a life of faith and trust for himself. It's not just about him being blessed by God. It's also a story about Abram learning to be a blessing, a blessing to all nations. We could say Abram was not only learning to live by faith, he was also learning to lead by faith. Context. Is that true, Pastor Eric? Well, quick context here in chapter 12. That's where Abram comes on the scene. Before we meet Abram in the book of Genesis, what we read from chapter 3 to 4 to 5 to 6, all the way up to chapter 11 is very dark and looks very hopeless. God has uh, attempted to restart his project with the human race, with Noah and the flood, wiping things clean, a whole new creation. But things are just the same. Violence continues. People move away from God. Everything is dark and it looks hopeless. There's really no mention of a living faith in God until we get to chapter 12 where God restarts again with Abram and says, I'm going to bless you and through you I'm going to bless all nations. I'm going to restore my creation design and intention for all peoples through you, Abraham. So we could say... With all that background, Abram, it's not just a story about him as an individual. It's a story about him being the founder and leader of a whole new humanity. We talk about our founding fathers here in our country. George Washington, John Adams, these kinds of people. This story of Abraham is like that. He is the founding father of a whole new way to live. A whole new way to lead. He was being called to lead in a very different way than all these other kings, very different than the other ways of leadership in the world then, 
and now. And we will see this theme repeated in Abram's story as we go on. There are a number of things that we could look at in this story. But my focus this morning will be on what we can learn, three meditations on what we can learn about leadership with special application to leadership in the church. What we see here from this story is the motive for leadership, the call to leadership, and the choice of leadership. First, the motive. And I'll read this whole story, okay? You've got these kings. Uh, they were controlling these other kings for about 12 years, and they got tired of it and said, no more, we're not going to pay you tribute anymore. Uh, we're going to rebel against you and your rule. And so they came and said, no, that's not going to work. And, and they defeated them. They took them captive. And you wonder, what does Abram have to do with this? How did Abraham get involved in this and why? I know we skipped chapter 13, but there were a lot of good reasons why Abraham should not have helped his nephew Lot. In chapter 13, we'll look at this next week, he and Lot got into a conflict as their flocks and their wealth grew. Lot did not defer to Abram as the, the clan leader, his, um, his elder. When given a choice by Abram, Lot said, I'll take the good land over there, the best part of the land. Abram, you just take the other stuff, the not-so-desirable not real estate. So Lot did that to Abram. Not, not, you know, not, not the best nephew there. And then Lot chose to live first near Sodom, which we learned was a very wicked city, a very unjust city. Then it says he not only lived near Sodom, he lived in Sodom is what it tells us here. He moved into the city. So there's more and more compromise in Lot's life. Lot got himself into a very bad situation. He, you could say, he deserved this. He made poor choices. He didn't consider Abram and his needs. He considered himself first. Now he was in need of help. You just think about that and ask, would you help somebody like that <laughs> who took advantage of you? who lived a compromised life, who kept getting further and further away from God and put themselves in a very dangerous situation. I don't know if I would help. This wasn't Abram's fight. He wasn't a part of all this. And he didn't join in the alliance that rebelled against these kings. The four kings, I know it's hard to follow, but the four kings said, we're going to rebel against the other kings. And then they got caught up in a war. Abram wasn't a part of that. It wasn't his fight. So why? Why did Abram go out? On a very long journey, it says here he went all the way to Dan. Dan is at the very top of uh, the nation of, of, of Israel or the land of Canaan. It was a week's, maybe months long journey that he went on to rescue his relative Lot. Well, if you look at verse 14, we have the answer. It's right here. Why did Abram go? When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he went. The key word there is relative. It's the Hebrew word for brother. Lot was his brother. It's translated relative or kin. It's the same word used for brother throughout the Old Testament, it's the same word used by Cain of Abel when 
He said of Abel to God, am I my brother's keeper? This word is used again in verse 16. He brought back all the goods and also his brother Lot, as well as the women and the other people. Why did Abram go and do this? He said, my brother needs me. He needs to come home. And that's why he went. He's my brother. He's family. To be family, to be brothers means his needs are my needs. His problems are my problems. My strength is his strength when he needs it. The motive to take leadership here that drove Abraham was family. Family means being your brother and sister's keeper. The word keeper, being your brother or sister's keeper, what does it mean to keep somebody or be their keeper? Keeper means to be a guard, to watch out for it, to keep an eye out for how they are doing. All the way back to the story of Cain and Abel where Cain said, I'm not my brother's keeper. We see how sin works to distance us from each other. And in our culture of extreme individualism, maybe we say, I don't need a keeper. (laughs) But the Bible is clear, everyone needs a keeper. People in their lives who are looking out for them, keeping an eye out for how they are doing. None of us see all the threats to our well-being, to our spiritual life. We can't see it all. Sometimes we get stuck, as Galatians 6 says, we get caught. We get stuck in some kind of trespass, in some kind of problem and issue and we need help and if everyone says I'm not my brother's keeper then we are all on our own and the point is that's not what family is family is saying you are my brother you are my sister we look out for one another all this sounds like another leader who went on a very long and dangerous journey to help his brothers and sisters get out of a situation that they had gotten themselves into. A problem that we would say they deserved. He came anyway to get them out of a situation that they couldn't get themselves out of. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us about this leader. Could we put that slide up? I'm going to have to move closer to read it. I'm just going to move over here. (laughs) Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now, since they have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free them who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear, watch this, he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, his family. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Why did Jesus become like us in every way? God Most High, the eternal Son of God, taking on our flesh, coming the longest distance we could possibly fathom from heaven to
to a normal human life. Why? What was the motive of Jesus Christ? Hebrews says, because you're my brother. Because, because you're my sister. You belong in the family. I'm bringing you home. Your needs are my needs. Your problem is my problem. You need my help. I'm paying attention to you. Your life matters to me. We say a trinity a lot. I think it's become a phrase. I hope it does become, if it's not already, church is family. That's how the New Testament describes the church. This means elders are older brothers who are the first to say, because Jesus did the same for me, for us. A brother's and sister's needs are, are my needs, their spiritual health, finding community, growing, using their gifts. Just like I, I would guard and keep something that's important to me with diligence and a watchful eye. For example, like your wallet. You're always patting yourself for your wallet. Right? Do I have it? Is it in my purse? Is it is in my pocket. If you have it somewhere and you're out and about, you don't just leave it out for anybody to see and to grab. You're paying attention to it. You're watching it. You're keeping it. You're guarding it. Why? It's so valuable to you. You're paying attention. In a family, you don't say, it's not my problem to the problems and needs of your brothers and sisters. Because what happens in a family when everybody says, it's not my problem, in a city, in a community, in a school or a church, things break down. If everybody says, those dishes are not my problem, that trash is not my problem, pretty soon it will be your problem. It'll grow out of control. Abram could have said, it's not my problem, Lot and people over there. An elder is someone who knows they could say this, but they choose not to. Why? Because each member of the family is valuable and important and worthy of paying attention to. You know, a keeper does not mean a watchdog or a moral police. That's not a good elder or some kind of like patronizing parent kind of thing in the body of Christ. An elder is saying, I'm paying attention to you, brother, sister. Your story, your walk with Jesus, your needs, they're on my mind, they're on my heart. And I'll step towards you when I think you need something. An elder says, everyone here is family. We all should do that, but elders in particular are called to lead as elder brothers. That's the motive of leadership here in this story. I want to talk now about the call to leadership. We often think of the call to leadership. What makes somebody want to be a leader? As the call to take charge, get people to take orders, to be at the top while other people do the hard work. You've earned your way out of. That's why you rose up in the ranks, right? So you don't have to do all that stuff down there. A call to get to the place of comfort and safety where you don't have as much risk or vulnerability that everybody else has. That's the perks of being at the top. The Bible paints a very different picture of the call to leadership here. Here, Abraham's call to lead, if he was going to take the call to go get his brother, was a call to risk, to risk suffering, to step out and make himself vulnerable when he didn't have to. The other leaders and kings in the story risked also. They go to war, 
They're attacking, but they're attacking for power. They're attacking for their glory, their reputation, and to get the spoils of victory. But Abraham didn't risk for any of those things. As we see at the end of the passage, he didn't take any of the spoils of victory. For Abram to be his brother's keeper meant he had to open himself up to suffering and risk when he didn't have to. To be vulnerable instead of being nice and safe, if you look at verse, where is it? Verse 13, he was comfortable in Mamre. He had made a treaty with people. He was at a place of peace. He was fine. (laughs) He was doing very well. He was prospering. He was good. Why risk? Why become vulnerable? There was no other way to save Lot. That's the only reason. The risk, the travel, the hardship, all the possible outcomes that would have brought unnecessary pain to Abram, that was all a part of the call to leadership to Abram. And also for all elders. I'm preaching to myself here this message, by the way, and all Christians, because this is how blessing comes through us to other people. It's blessing through vulnerability and through suffering. Jesus, the ultimate son of Abram, offspring of Abraham, our leader and king, has done the same for us. Not just in choosing to become vulnerable like we read about in Hebrews chapter 2. He took on flesh and blood. In every way, he became a human being. God, hard to fathom, God becoming vulnerable. Not only becoming vulnerable to risk suffering, Jesus became vulnerable and chose suffering, knowing that's what lied ahead for him. Why? To, def- to defeat our enemies for us that we could not defeat on our own sin, death, and Satan. He got suffering, we get freedom. He chose cursing to give us blessing, death for him and life for us. For Jesus, the call to lead, to lead us, to be the true and ultimate founder of a new humanity, to lead us into the blessing of God, to bring blessing to all the nations, us, was a call to lead through suffering, vulnerability, and risk. And it's the same for all Christians. It's the same for all leaders in the church. Now, one of the things... um, that we wonder about when it comes to the leaders in our lives, right? Your bosses and whoever are are the people who are over us. When leaders are acting or making decisions or doing things, we wonder, I wonder, (laughs) is this for me or is this for you? Are you telling me to do this so you can get something out of me to advance yourself? Or is this for my good? We think about that with politicians, right? Is this for you? (laughs) So you can get elected or is this for us in our community? How do you tell the difference? Whether it's for the leader or for the people they're called to serve. Well, one way would be when someone suffers as a substitute in your place. This is how I'm going to lead you. 
If you are suffering, I will suffer with you. If I can suffer in your place, I will do that for you. It's a surefire way to tell. They're leading for you, not for themselves. We've talked about this a lot in our elder training. You know, talking about how much time is this going to take and what are the nature of the meetings and that sort of thing. And we've all just had the conversation about the cost that there is to leadership. And tried not to downplay it because it's clear in the New Testament. To be called to lead in the church is a call to suffer with and for other people. As the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, one of his epistles focused on leadership. He talks about when, when he's leading, his choice to lead. He's actually defending his leadership there in that letter. He says, here's what, here's what it's like for me. And he gives his resume of suffering about how he suffered for the sake of the churches he leads. He says, in, in addition to all that, I have the burdens of the church on my heart, the anxiety in my heart for the churches. To be a leader is to choose more anxiety, to bear more burdens. Now for the guys who are just ordained, hopefully that doesn't come as a surprise to you and you say, hold on a second. You put it like that, I'm not so sure. And I don't think that's true. Because we see in Jesus and how the Apostle Paul put it, death works in us, but life works in you. We walk by faith and not by sight. As we know, as we are poured out, as we suffer with and for you, we remember this is how blessing came to us and how blessing comes through the leaders, all Christians. We lead and influence others by being vulnerable, by risking, by suffering. That's the call to leadership. Lastly, the choice of leadership here. This is the, the, the latter half of the story, the, the latter portion. I've already said this, but we have a lot of suspicion, a lack of trust towards leaders, I think, in our modern culture. Political leaders, corporate leaders, religious leaders, you know, the whole phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We're like, we get that, we see that, we feel like that's happening all over the place. Stories about the abuse of leadership abound everywhere. Maybe for some of you at work or family or even church, it has left deep wounds. And we know that this is an issue now, but it's not just an issue now. It's been happening throughout human history. We look at these kings. This is the first story of war in the Bible. And the sad history of humanity is that this continues on and on and on as leadership abuses its power. And we, we might ask, what is the deal with leadership? So many stories of leadership being misused and abused and used for self-promotion and advantage at the expense of others. Most leaders, we would say especially maybe in the church, don't start out that way and say, I want to be a leader in the church so I can take advantage of others, abuse and misuse my power. Nobody's thinking that. What is it about leadership? This story gives us insight into the answer to that question. It shows us that every leadership comes with a choice. Instead of the word choice, we might substitute temptation. Abram faced it here. 
he succeeded. This is a great story of Abraham coming back as a hero. And you can imagine he was successful in that campaign. He rescued Lot and all these people who had been taken captive and maybe facing a life of slavery. He delivers them. He comes back and everyone's like, Abram, 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 and excited. And of course, many of them, their family members were rescued. But immediately as he comes back, he faces a choice represented by these two kings here at the end. These two kings, the king of Sodom and the king uh, called Melchizedek, represent two different offers, two different agendas, the choice of leadership in verses 17 through 24. What's going on here? There's a choice. Abram, leaders, anyone who has influence, will you do this? For personal gain, glory, and prestige, and to take the credit for what you did? Or will you give glory and honor to God, God Most High, and acknowledge what you did as a grace, as a gift? Will you take the position of Most High over other people and enjoy all the benefits from that? Or will you acknowledge God and God alone to be God Most High? So Melchizedek came first, right? They, they both come up together. You can imagine the scene, two kings coming up, Abram, Abram, and one king comes up, Melchizedek, king of Salem, a very mysterious figure. His name means king of righteousness. He's the king of a city called Peace, king of righteousness and peace. He offers Abram bread and wine like a priest, this meal of victory, and then he blesses him. In the Bible, it's always the greater figure who blesses the lesser figure. This is Abraham the hero. This king, this dude comes out of nowhere. And he's blessing Abraham? What? Abraham could have said, I'm the hero. Why are you flexing on me right here by trying to bless me? I'm going to bless you. That's not what Abraham did. He gives a tithe, a gift, 10% of what he came back with to this king. And it's so fascinating. And then right after that, this king, this other king comes, king of Sodom, who says rather bluntly to the hero who just saved everybody in his city, I get the people, you get the stuff. And the Hebrew there, it's, it's a command. Very blunt command. He didn't say thank you for saving like my wife and children or whatever. Like he's like, that's all he said. You know, give me the people, you get the stuff. But why not? This makes a ton of sense. It's very plausible. For many reasons, Abraham could have said, this is going very slowly, this whole promise of God, to be a great nation and to like get control of this whole thing and to be a blessing. And all. I could just take everything right now and I could become a great nation and a great leader. But he would have been indebted to a wicked king. He would compromise achieving God's ends with sinful means in alliance with evil, in alliance with the world's ways of leadership. And he would have been just another king, operating like they all did. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and we'll stay here at the top. What does he choose? Look at verse 22. This is so good. Abram said to the king of Sodom, 
I raise my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal or strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. This is the first vow in the Bible. What does Abram vow? That no one except God will get the glory for his leadership success. That he will not turn what God has given him as a gift into something that he can use for his own advantage. He's been given a gift to bless others, not to take from others. And as we heard the vows today, to faithfully perform the duties of an elder, I am reminded, our new elders are reminded that we are all declaring our choice up front before you and before God. That this is a gift. Ordination is a gift to bless. We read about this in our Bible reading plan, if you're following along. In Mark, Jesus, immediately after his call to begin his ministry, he faced the same choice, the same temptation to lead by the ways of the world. Give people what they want, Jesus, so that they'll like you. Give them bread. (laughs) Turn all the stones to bread. Feed the people. Wow the people with power. Jump off of the temple and just kind of like, let the angels pick you up. And then they'll listen to you. Take the place of most high over them. All the splendor of the earth and the world's kingdoms and the glory and the gain you can have. And Satan says to him, Just worship me, do things my way. God's ends by Satan's means. And Jesus said no. He did not use his power and leadership to exploit or take. He emptied himself from all his divine rights and prerogatives, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself to the lowest possible point. We could say he made a vow. He had made a promise. He was sent by the Father and said, not my will, but yours be done. This whole story here is really a hero story. And I know that we have a lot of sophisticated people here who are sophisticated in their choice of movies, who like like avant-garde artistic movies. But the truth is, everybody's favorite movies in terms of the numbers is like all the hero movies, right? Superhero movies. We know we get a little bit tired of it, but Marvel and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Avatar go on and on. They are hero stories. This is a hero story, and the entire story is meant to be read in suspense. You're reading it, and really the suspense is not meant to be, will Abram win? You kind of know he will if you're reading up to this point. The suspense is, if Abram wins, will he give credit and glory and honor to God? Will he acknowledge God as the true victor and deliverer? Or will he take it for himself? Will he see what he has been given as a gift to bless? Or will he take it for his own advantage? By God's grace, you see the order and the way the story flows? Before the king of Sodom comes to Abram, 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 and everybody's hyping him up, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he says, you can take all this stuff. Before that happens, Melchizedek comes in first, and he reminds him before the king of Sodom makes the offer to become a king like all others, Abram, 
It is God most high who has delivered you, he says. In verse 20, he has handed over your enemies to you. He is the deliverer. He is the hero, not you. He is the victor. And he deserves the glory, not you. And maybe this is the central lesson for all Christian leadership in the church and all the influence we might have that God gives us as a gift to bless the other people in our lives. You are not the hero. We are not the hero. He is. God most high, who has come to us in Jesus Christ to the lowest place to save us. He is the hero. It is not our wisdom and gifts and abilities and strategies and skills. Having the best meetings and the decisions that we make that will win the victory. Our greatest victory is to, with our lives and with our leadership, point people to Jesus, the victor and the hero. The Bible tells us Melchizedek was a shadow of Jesus Christ, the great priest king, our savior and our hero. And we see, how did Abraham resist that temptation to make leadership about himself? How did he make the choice? Well, through the intervention of this priest king who came at the right moment and said, Abram, don't do it. Don't make this about you. And he made a meal before him by fellowship with God. This priest king brought Abram into fellowship with God. They enjoyed a meal strengthened by the bread and the wine, bolstered by the reminder of the blessing and humbled by the truth that God is the hero and deliverer. Abram made the right choice. Yes, this is the end of the sermon, so. <laughs> Thank you for that warning. May our leadership as a session, the elders of our church, may your leadership, wherever God has called you to bless others, may we do the same. May we point to the real hero. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us <clears throat> this story that reminds us so much of you. That you are not ashamed to call us your brothers and sisters. That you laid down your life to bring us into the family of God. To take our place again in the family to receive all the blessings of adoption. We know that came at great cost to yourself. You went to the lowest place, the most vulnerable place. You took the place that we deserved so we could have your place in the family and in the kingdom. And you withstood all the temptation of using what was rightfully yours for yourself and your glory to force us into submission. And instead, you humbled yourself. This is our salvation. You are our king and our leader. And I pray for myself and the leaders of our church that we would follow your lead, that we would not make it about ourselves, that you would be the hero of this church from now on and forever. 
that you would guide us in that wisdom, that we would not lead by the world's ways, but by the way of the gospel. That you would give us courage to be vulnerable, honest, humble servants. And that you, the Most High, would be the Most High in this church and through all of us where you call us to bless other people as we face that choice maybe on a daily basis. May we be strengthened by your intervention. Would you intervene in those moments when we need you to remind us it's about you and it's not about us. We pray all this in your powerful name. Amen.